You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, is this. Is But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, when the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Someone came and told them, Look, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching." And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen? Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. 
God, we ask you this morning that you would come and that you would speak to us. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit. Lord, that you would, that you would um, enlighten corridors of our hearts, dark spaces of our hearts. By the power of your spirit, you would speak to those spaces. God, that you would come and that you would um, rebuke us if needed. You'd give us healing where needed, encouragement where needed, and courage where needed. Lord, we ask those things and then some. Most of all, Father, please magnify the name of your son, Jesus, crucified, risen, and returning to us this morning. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. One of the things that you uh, begin to pick up as you study the Bible is uh, that Satan really will stop at nothing to uh, derail the church from uh, her God-given gospel responsibility. That's the reality. From, from beginning to end, Satan um, is at work trying to derail church. Really, at the end of the day, he's, he's seeking to derail God himself. He wants to dethrone God and place himself there. And one of the primary ways he tries to get after that is by going after God's people. If you were to do a brief study of church history, you'd find that the history of the church, all the way back to the book of Acts, uh, is full of story after story. So-called uh, religious leaders being used as instruments of Satan, rather than being used as instruments of truth and grace. There's more than enough modern-day examples, of course. You can look at all the headlines, Facebook, websites. You can find enough examples of uh, leaders gone sideways, absolutely failing in their God-given responsibility to not only proclaim the gospel, um, but to adorn the gospel with their lives and their ministries. Even some of our heroes throughout church history, again, if you just go back to church history, you think about that for a minute, some of the well-known names of theologians and church leaders, um, guilty of some very seriously sinful Grievous sins in the name of Christianity. Uh, Martin Luther is one that I, I love to read. I think most of us probably have. You've been following Jesus for a little while. You've, you've read a few quotes here and there, bare minimum. Might have read a few of his books or his treaties. and They're good, solid theological stuff. Martin Luther had a sharp mouth. Um, he would have polarized his opponents uh, when he was in debate. And a friend of mine uh, this last week, we were talking about this, and he said, yeah, it wasn't even just so much that he tried to polarize them. He would try to publicly humiliate his opponents with his knowledge of God's word. Um, I can be prone to that. Uh, I can be really sharp-witted. Um, that's Martin Luther. Um, and that's not his only black eye. I mean, that really, that one is, is pretty minor. Um, he, he had a view of the separation of church and state uh, that uh, I think is a bit different than what we um, live in. Um, his view of uh, separation of church and state, along, um, and along those lines, he, he, his encouragement uh, for state officials in his area, um, he, he encouraged them to absolutely crush uh, what, what's known as the, the peasant uprising or the peasant rebellion. 
Um, and and he, just, he waffled back and forth. And, and at some point, he, he, uh, he encouraged the state officials to crush the rebellion. And in doing so, it led to an all-out bloody massacre. That's what he stepped into the pulpit with every week um, behind him. <clears throat> some, uh, I think some people would, would start to explain some of those things by saying, hey, this, this is part of the culture um, in that day. True, it was, but I don't think it makes it any less wrong. I don't care what's part of the culture. I don't think it makes it any less wrong. Uh, John Calvin would be another one that I, I really adhere to, love, um, appreciate a lot of what he said, appreciate what he did. I mean, in, in some regard, um, I mean, the, these men, Luther, Calvin, like they were the spark of the Reformation. Um, Calvin, though, he was known, and this is a statement out of a textbook, he was known to discipline his church members, listen to this, with a severity that was not always matched by the government. <laughs> I mean, you, you know what the government was doing during these times um, in regards to discipline. Pretty brutal. Somehow, Calvin makes it in here as being somebody who disciplined his church members with a severity that didn't even come close to the government. Also pretty well known, and if you didn't know this, this will probably uh, horrify you and knock your socks off, but uh, pretty well known, pretty well documented. He, he actually approved, wholeheartedly approved, of, of the execution of a man named Servetus, who had been deemed as a heretic, um, and he wound up being burned alive at the stake, partly because of um, Calvin's uh, desire to see this man be executed as a heretic, um, the, the catch here is that he didn't necessarily think he should be burned alive. He thought he should be beheaded. That was his whole argument. That's horrifying. So church history, even when you look at even when you look for our heroes in church history, you would see that it shows us that even the best of us fall prey to Satan's attacks. Agreed? Even the best of us. The thing that we need to be reminded of, I think, as we observe leadership gone wrong, and that's, uh, as you look at this text, as we get back into it here in a moment, that's partially what you see, at least, in the text, is definitely spiritual leadership gone wrong. The thing we need to be reminded of as we observe this, though, um, is that this, try as we might, you and I, none of us are immune to the peculiar temptations and idolatries that so often plague the church and God's people. Okay? Uh, I think we would all agree with those things. Uh, I also think it's important to recognize that, that sometimes, uh, I just think this is a caution for us, sometimes our religious language, all it does, oftentimes, um, is acts like lipstick for sinful behavior. Now, I, that's, I think that's hard for any of us to admit. But I think we can justify things that don't look or sound so sinful um, with religious language. That's exactly what Calvin and Luther did. If you were to read their defense of the things they did, they actually would use Scripture to defend what they did. That's using religious language as lipstick for sin. Now, if you look back through the Bible, if you, if you even just jump out of just the church age, so to speak, and you just... Work your way back through the Bible. 
you start to realize that this, this is something that's plagued God's people from day one, right? Even our biblical heroes. Think about some of them with me for a minute. Adam and Eve, right? Well, we know the story there. What did they do? They, they listened to the serpent. They listened to Satan. Now, here's my question. All, for all of us, you translate from there to here, build a bridge from that culture to this culture, right? Real quick. You think about Adam and Eve. Like, they, they were not, they, they didn't have the original infection of sin to begin with, right? If they're in the garden, everything's perfect. They're walking in perfect fellowship with God. Oftentimes, I think we say, man, if I could just walk closer to God, I would sin less. Well, I think there's probably some truth to that, right? Sanctification, walking in holiness and growing. Yeah, there's some truth to that. But you look at Adam and Eve, and they still had this ability to choose in that moment to either listen to the voice of God or listen to the voice of Satan. And what did they do? They listened to the voice of Satan. So they'd be really proud of us to think that we, just because we sit in churches uh, uh, throughout the week or because we've made a profession of faith in Christ, um, that, that somehow we wouldn't have learned already to listen to the voice of deception and even, in, in some regard, justify what we're doing. Those are just kind of warnings, right? It's kind of, it almost kind of scares you a little bit, because it's like, oh, well, it's almost like he's questioning everything that I knew is reality. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but I definitely want to like, set us in that place, right? So you got Adam and Eve, right? They, they listen to the voice of the, the serpent. They introduce the entire human race to the infection of sin. What about Noah? We know the story of Noah, right? Good God, built a boat, obeyed God, trusted him by faith, and he got drunk and passed out on the beach naked in front of his kids. That's a pretty big deal. Abraham, kids, you know the song, Father Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Okay, stop. We're not going to sing the whole song. <laughs> but Abraham, he's a hero, right? Really, he is in many ways. He did so many great things under the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, and I think we have a tendency to gloss these things over about our biblical heroes, and we see them in a way that we should not. They're still broken men. Abraham lied not once, twice, about the identity of his wife, right? True technicality, she was kind of like a distant sister, but uh, she was his wife. And he lied about her identity, which nearly got her raped, not once, but twice. I tell you, if I did that to my wife, I don't know if I'd be walking the earth anymore. <laughs> you know, um, that's 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 pretty horrific. I mean, when you stop and you think about it, it's pretty horrific that a man, out of his own self-protection, men, isn't this what we do well sometimes? Protect ourselves and throw somebody else under the bus, not even realizing maybe even that you did it. Like we can water it down a little bit like that. I. Although I do think it's just built into us. So what Abraham did, threw his wife under the bus, protect his own hide. David, we know the story of David, right? David, mighty hero, stones and a sling, took out the giant, which gives us these really pragmatic ways, kind of weird ways of teaching kids' church, where we're like, pick up your stones and slay your giants, although the text was never meant to mean that. Never meant to be taught that way. But... David also failed, used his power to rape his friend's wife, murdered his friend to cover up what he'd done, 
Judas betrayed Jesus for a fat financial payoff. Peter denied knowing Jesus because he was afraid. Right? Stories go on and on and on. The Bible is full of leaders who failed epically. And here in the book of Acts, we've already seen some of this taking place. We've already observed Satan trying to disrupt the ministry of the gospel through threat of death. Threat of death. See that? Five times fast. He's tried to disrupt the ministry of the gospel through threatening death to Peter and John right after they healed the lame man in chapter 4. That's a, that's a scary moment, I think. Um, you all saw uh, Satan trying to mess with the church from the inside last week, right? Couldn't get him from the outside, but tried to get him from the inside. He tried to jack everything up through some church members who wound up getting, saw this uh, meme on Facebook, slain in the spirit for real. Like the only people that ever actually got slain in the spirit, those guys. It's not quite what it looks like in some of our Pentecostal and charismatic churches. You know, quite different. Quite more literal, <laughs> you might say. Now, now the religious leaders, this council of Pharisees and Sadducees, these guys should be the guys with the white hats, not the black hats. They should be the good guys. They're not. They get used by Satan once again here, and they're trying to get the apostles to stop preaching the gospel. Starts out, the apostles get arrested, right? That's where the, the story for us starts this morning. Apostles get arrested in verses 17 through 25, and they get arrested for preaching the gospel. And what happens? An angel shows up in the middle of the night, miraculously busts them out of jail. Got their get out of jail free card. Apostles go back to preaching in the temple in obedience to the angel's instructions, and the religious leaders who had arrested them because of their jealousy, the text tells us. That's a fascinating thing that we could spend some time on. Like just simply because they were jealous of the attention that the apostles were getting, they, they arrest them. Those leaders show back up again the next morning. I think they're expecting to hold a, like a public trial. Maybe they're hoping to execute the, the apostles. And what do they find out? They find out that the apostles somehow escaped. They escaped and now they're back to preaching again, which just knocks my socks off, right? Because I just think that there's, there's some kind of a little bit of audacious obedience uh, to God here. Or you could say audacious disobedience to some really bad spiritual leaders. You could say that too. You could, that's two sides of the same coin. It just knocks my socks off when I look at the apostles doing what they do. Like, they didn't get out of jail and then disappear. The cow jail went right back to the same place they got arrested at. Nobody does that. You know? Nobody does that. I guess, like, I guess if you, if you put yourself in their shoes, you think about this, okay? If, if you were to tell some, like, off-their-rail religious leaders, not exactly leading religiously in the first place, that you're, you're not going to obey them, right? Because this is what took place in chapter 4. You're not going to obey them. Th those guys, they can just basically go kick rocks somewhere. That's basically what they told them. Because obedience to God is of first importance, right? You've done that, and then, and then you get arrested for ignoring them, and then God shows up and miraculously sets you free. I guess if I'm in their shoes, that'd probably fill me with some kind of crazy courage too, right? But God certainly seemed to be blessing 
the apostles in the midst of their disobedience to their spiritual authorities as they thought, sought to obey him alone. So it's kind of a fascinating way to begin the story. Um, but don't miss the fact that all this is happening, yet at the same time, even as the apostles stand up, obey God, disobey these frauds over here, um, there's still uh, there, there's a price to pay. Uh, it, it doesn't come without getting some bumps and bruises. Second thing that happens is the apostles get questioned, right? Verses 26 through 33. The apostles get hauled into the courtroom. Now, they don't get hauled in there by force. Um, text tells us, Luke tells us, that their captors are afraid of getting hurt by the crowd of people who are listening to the apostles preach. So it's interesting to see here what, what both jealousy and fear will do to you. Those, those religious leaders, they were jealous, so they begin to mistreat the apostles, and now they're afraid, and so they kind of start to handle them with some kid gloves. It just kind of fascinates me. And once they had the apostles where they wanted them, right? They, they had them in the courtroom, so to speak, and in front of the judge's bench, so to speak. They're, they're, they're in front of the inquisition, if you will. They're, they're going to get questioned. Not quite waterboarded, but probably just as scary. Begin to question them about why they're filling Jerusalem with their teaching, why they're spreading stories around about the blood of Jesus being on the council's hands. The council, these leaders that make up this council, they didn't want the apostles to tell stories about their sin in murdering Jesus. Because the message of the cross and the, the empty tomb and the promised return of Jesus, what was that doing? That was, that was continuously casting shade on this council. That's what was taking place. They didn't want them to do that anymore. They wanted to shut up, stop. And of course, the apostles respond. You, you see it in verses 29 through 32. They respond in the power of the Spirit by using this moment to preach the gospel once again. I mean, it's crazy, the, the audacity of these guys. But look at what they say, verses 29 through 32. They say, hey, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, comma, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Hey, would you quit telling people that that guy's blood is on our hands? Uh, no, we need to obey God rather than men. And the reality is you did kill him. <laughs> God exalted him, they go on to say, at his right hand. That, that's a bold statement to say that Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of the Father. Um, that, that is to simply say he is God because only God could fulfill that space, occupy that space. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's, I mean, that's, that's crazy language. Of course, Luke, Luke tells us in verse 33 that once the council heard these things, what did they do? It says that they were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. Again, I really admire the tenacity of the apostles, but I also really admire the way they face their accusers, right? The way they face them while standing firm on the gospel. 
Okay? They didn't try to play head games um, by, by like trying to appeal to logic. Although I, I would argue, too, that anything anti-gospel is purely illogical. They didn't, they didn't try to appeal to logic necessarily. They didn't try to beg for the council's mercy. Uh, they didn't try to manipulate the situation by offering false apologies just so they could get out of there with their skin intact. But they remained firmly rooted in the preaching of the gospel, and they even threw in a couple of extra jabs Okay, I don't know if you caught it, but I, there's a few extra jabs in what they say about the Holy Spirit being a witness to the council's evil atrocities. They're like, hey, the Holy Spirit saw you. He saw what you did. And that same Holy Spirit has been given to those who obey God. And we've already told you, we don't obey men, we obey God. So we have the Holy Spirit, and since the Holy Spirit saw what you did to Jesus, you're obviously bankrupt and headed towards certain. That's the message they're sending. Once again, their tenacity for the gospel, I think it comes at a high cost, right? Because in, in, in the last section of the text, uh, you see the, the apostles get beaten, but then they get set free. Which, when we get there, that whole part fascinates me too. Okay? But they get beaten. Uh, verses 34 through 40, uh, you got one of the council members, his name is Gamaliel, stands up, he gives a word of caution to the rest of the council by just basically essentially reminding them of their past false messiahs uh, who, who, whose ministries ended super terribly. So he just kind of gives a quick rundown of those dudes, and then he warns the council to leave the apostles alone just in case they're really acting on behalf of God, because the essential thought here is like, hey, who, who wants to be found opposing God anyways? I don't want to be found opposing God. And I think that's basically what Gamaliel is saying. It's like, yo, if you, you keep moving forward, that might be where you find your, yourself. You move your way through the text, and it seems that the council is probably going to heed Gamaliel's warning. Um, at least, I think, in terms of not executing the apostles, right? Not going to do that. But they do beat the apostles severely. Some commentators would state they got beat nearly similarly to, to Jesus, the, the 39 lashes. Um, 40 minus 1, I think, is the way it goes, right? Maybe it's 39 minus 1. I can't remember. My, my brain's crazy. Whatever it is. That it's that within an inch of your life type of a sense, okay? They beat them within an inch of their life. They charged them to stop spreading their message. They turned them loose to roam the streets again. At which point, what does Luke tell us? And this is a part that I just love. It just you know, it gets me. He tells us in verses 41 through 42, if the apostles leave the courtroom, what's the word? Rejoicing. <laughs> leave their rejoicing. Do, do you know? Do you know that word rejoicing? If we were to describe the American church today and the way that we respond to the minor levels of suffering we face on account of the gospel, I don't know if that's the word that the scriptures would have used. It would have used something more like complaining, um, gossiping, <laughs> trash talking. I mean, I, or I'm just putting myself in the text, okay? Because this is the things I do. I complain, arguing, I like to argue a lot, um, trash talking, yeah. You probably could even go as far as saying, you know, like making bomb plans to blow things up. I don't mean that in a terroristic way, okay? So we should probably straighten that out because this does go public somewhere, right? So, you're like blowing up somebody's plans. 
the things that run through my head uh, when I face suffering or opposition are definitely not gospel-centered. Sometimes the things I say and do are not either, which means that in those moments, who am I being used by? Satan, not God. Right? No different than Calvin or Luther or any other biblical character or any other human being alive. But in this moment, the apostles are described as probably crawling out of that place, because I don't know how well they were walking after that kind of beating. And the word that's describing them is rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's where I think I'm really convicted and convinced that this is, for me at least, probably what the Holy Spirit wants to do inside of me through this text this morning. I don't know about you. Um, maybe you'd join me in the same place. But they walked out of there rejoicing that they were kind of worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then this, this gets me. And every day in the temple, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles didn't whine. They didn't complain. They didn't like send up the Facebook posts that we always want to do, you know? Darn Democrats, those darn Republicans, right? That's not what we do, right? They didn't do that. <laughs> they were filled with overflowing joy and even more courage. Like these are marks of the Holy Spirit on somebody who's been so affected by the gospel that their life is absolutely transformed. Because they're doing something that's out of the norm for human nature. So they get out of there and they continue preaching in the name of Jesus. And they continue preaching right there even in the temple. The place they got arrested. Like they went right back there as well as from house to house. It's almost like they're just kind of sticking it right in the faces of this council. Like, hey, you, you can't stop us. At the end of the day, I, 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 you just cannot stop a, a spirit-filled person who has truly witnessed the power of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. There, there, there's, there's, there's no opposition that, that can stop that kind of a person. No matter what the opposition tried here, the apostles never shut their mouths. No matter how many times Satan attempted to stop the gospel from spreading, either through internal pressures like Ananias and Sapphira or, or external pressures like Israel's religious leaders, no matter how many different ways Satan tried, God always won and his people never shut up. Even in death, we think about the death of these guys, okay? Even in death, man, the apostles still proclaimed the gospel as they were being martyred brutally for their faith. The church history shows us that Matthew had an angel present when he was murdered with a sword. Has anybody here ever been stabbed with a sword? No, me neither. I have one down in my office. Never been stabbed with one. I don't think I've ever threatened to stab anybody with it. But I would bring a whole new meaning to church discipline, right? <laughs> and then I would make the history books 
just like Calvin did. It's not what I want. Matthew had an angel present when he was murdered with a sword. Mark was dragged to death. You ever seen like an old western where dude gets dragged behind a horse until he dies? I mean, there's not very many of those old westerns, which I love old westerns, but there's not many, many of those that show what that would really actually look like. It'd be pretty brutal. He got drugged through the streets of a city until he was dead. Luke was hanged on a tree. John was boiled alive in oil. You ever drop a little bit of hot oil on your hand? Ah. He boiled alive in hot oil, and he didn't die. I'm pretty sure he's probably begging God, would you please just let me die? Get me out of here. This is horrible. Then, after that, because he didn't die, they obviously couldn't kill him. They banished him to an island all by himself to live out the rest of his existence in loneliness. So if the, the flesh being burned from his body wasn't enough, the sheer weight of being absolutely alone, they figured would be enough to make him suffer for preaching in the name of Christ. And from that island, he writes books of the Bible. He can't shut him up. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. Another James was thrown off a tall building, didn't die when he got thrown off, and then he was beaten to death with a club. Philip was hanged. Bartholomew was beaten like Jesus until he did die. Andrew was crucified. And as he was being crucified, he continued to preach until he drew his last breath. Thomas was impaled with a spear. Jude was filled full of arrows. Matthias got stoned with rocks and beheaded. Same thing happened to Barnabas. The Apostle Paul was beheaded too. So the moral of the story is this. If you, if you have really encountered the crucified, risen, and returning Christ, then you will, you will not shut up about it. And there's no power of hell or intimidation from Satan that will stop you. Why is the question. Why? Why is that? And the answer, I think, is that when someone really comes to grips with the depravity of their own sin, when you look deep down inside of you, and you know what you're capable of, you know the thoughts that go through your head, you know the desires you have in your heart, you know the things that you do with your hands, with your life, the things that nobody else sees even, or you think nobody else sees, you know just based on the little bit that you are capable of seeing and identifying in you, you know that you are broken, you are sinful. You want to play the piano? When you start there, when you start there and you realize that you are absolutely broken, you come to grips with the depravity deep down inside of you, and then you also get confronted at the same time with the absolute grace of God in the person and the work of Jesus, right? That this perfect man would come and give his life for you, even though you made an absolute war against him. When you come to grips with that message, and the message of repentance and this promise of eternal life in God's presence, I think something radically transformative happens in that person's life, and they don't shut up. And this is what happened to the apostles. This is what did not happen to the council at that point. Although I do believe there are some of that council that eventually came to the Lord and began following him. 
think what happens in this kind of person's life is they're not just trying to, to win fights to merely win fights. They're not, not just walking around angry because of everybody who opposes them. These kinds of people just simply don't stop sharing the message of the gospel in a winsome and attractive and bold sort of a way. So think for a minute about the way that you share the gospel with your words in your life. If you were to ask those around you who do not know the Lord, and ask those around you who do know the Lord, just say, hey, the way that I use my words and the way that I live my life, how, how, how does that share the gospel? What does that look like to you? Like, do I look like a complainer? Do I, do I look like somebody who just all the time is frustrated and angry because of people that oppose me? I mean, am I always just trying to win fights with the lost, or am I actually winsome? Am I actually inviting somebody to something that they actually want to be part of? Am I actually communicating the transformative work of God in someone's life? Those are questions that would be really good to ask of those two different kinds of people, and then ask the Holy Spirit to use their answers to maybe help you continue to walk in repentance in that way, right? When you think about the apostles here, you notice that they're not going to stop sharing the message. They're not going to shut up. You, you can arrest them and they won't shut up. Uh, you can question them, they're not going to shut up. You can beat them, they're not going to shut up. You can threaten them, and, and, and what's going to happen is, is, is they're going to go, and they're, they're not only going to not shut up, um, but they're going to really start a, what I think you'd call like a spirit-filled revolution, right? Still going today. It's the reason we're sitting in this room today. So in conclusion, when you think about this story, when you think about this story, doesn't it give you like maybe a new appreciation for what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Like if you're going to build the bridge from there till now, like these apostles are not sitting in a, in a fairly comfortable room with the air conditioner or the heat going, um, and they don't have the comfortable seats. It's none of that. There really probably isn't much of a ministry philosophy or a mission statement or a war cry, so to speak. Um, to me, it brings a new appreciation for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Here's the question. What did you really believe when you first started following Jesus? Or when you showed up this morning, like if you're visiting, right? Or anybody, even if you're not visiting, you've been here for a while. What did you, what did you really believe it meant to be a follower of Jesus this morning as you went to church, a place that doesn't really exist, but a people that does? We've kind of turned church into this place we attend rather than a, a people we're part of, Right? And, and we, the people, are the church who gathers in a building, right? And, and you might go, well, you're just splitting hairs, Joe. <laughs> well, no, I'm not, because tiny little words that change the trajectory of how we live, really, I think. So, so what did you really believe it meant to be a follower of Jesus this morning? Because I, I think as you look at this text, as you think about it, I think being a follower of Jesus is not about the comforts of a social gathering or a political cause, although the church has been used that way for eons, centuries. In bed and out of bed with governments. I mean, just nuts. 
being a follower of Jesus, I think, is about sharing the gospel at all costs. That's like the very last thing Jesus said before he left. And I, and I think that's what it's about. So you think about the analogy of a cruise ship and a battleship, right? A cruise ship is meant for comfort and entertainment. Which is what we, the church, are oftentimes guilty of. Battleship is meant for making war. Making war against an enemy and rescuing those who are being oppressed by that enemy. And I think that when church members and church leaders begin to make that mental and spiritual shift, <clears throat> when that starts to happen deep down inside of you, I think something changes in the spiritual atmosphere. I really believe that. And I think it stirs up a hornet's nest too, right? A satanic activity. That's, that's really what's taking place in the book of Acts. A hornet's nest is getting stirred up because the apostles who previously not long ago were so afraid, they denied Jesus, ran, bailed, hid, and left him. They encountered the risen Christ. They got filled with the Holy Spirit and they can't be stopped. And that's stirring up an absolute hornet's nest all over the place. And no matter what Satan throws at God's people, even when he turns those, others around us, who should be wearing the same jerseys as us, even when he turns those against us, once you get a taste for the radical transforming message of the bloody cross, the empty tomb, the promise of Christ's return, when you latch onto that, you lay hold of that, and it's not just about like a book that you read every now and then because it's going to give you good vibes. You know, or, or it's going to give you like some good direction today for how to handle your loud, crazy kids who are all over the place, right? When you're not just reading it for these little pragmatic self-help things, but you're actually reading it so that you can encounter the living God, that changes something about the way a person lives. And I think you begin to realize that being the church would most definitely mean that you'll face some really harsh conditions. Why? Because Satan knows his days are numbered. He knows that the spirit within you is unstoppable. And he'll stop at nothing to shut you up and shut the church down. It's a spiritual battle. It's spiritual warfare. The whole thing is encompassed in that. I think we forget about that. Like the good news that keeps us going, I think, even in the face of severe opposition or rejection or betrayal or suffering, is this. This, the bloody cross turns enemies into family. Let me say it again. The bloody cross turns enemies into family. It's what it's meant to do. It's what it does. You'll be surprised at who you see in heaven, I believe. I believe I will be too. The bloody cross turns enemies into family. The empty tomb turns dead people into ferocious gospel proclaiming people promise of heaven gives us the kind of hope that we need to endure all of the evil we see today. If you can hang your hat on those three statements and hang on to them and memorize them and etch them on your heart, I think that's the picture of true freedom that the apostles experienced as they were turned loose at the end. It's true freedom. It enables you to share the gospel however, wherever, whenever, however you can no matter who's trying to stop you. And then finally, I want to say three things. Kind of address maybe two or three different groupings of people that you might be in this room. Make one last application of the gospel. If you, if you face some like really severe opposition because of your unwillingness to let go of the truth, okay, if that's you, 
<clears throat> and it's not like you're out there just being a jerk, okay, trying to win fights and beat people down and run around rah, 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 angry because you got the truth and everybody else is stupid, right? But you actually have done everything you can to, to winsomely share the truth and you're facing some severe opposition to that because of your unwillingness to let it go. You're doing that in humility. I want to remind you that the bloody cross, the empty tomb, the promise of heaven, that is the only fuel you need to keep opening your mouth and speaking the truth in those winsome ways. If you, if you fellowship with Jesus at a bloody cross, if you fellowship with him at an empty tomb, if you fellowship with him in the promise of re, re, his return, I guarantee you things will change about the way you continue to stand on that truth. But it will fuel you to keep moving forward. Secondly, you find yourself fading into the shadows. There's some of us that are that way. You kind of fade back into the shadows. You get wrapped up in some sinful activity that's kind of dried up your thirst for sharing the gospel. I'll remind you, Jesus knew that you would experience these days. And what did he do? He still died for you. He still left the tomb empty for you. He still promised you eternity. And it's never too late to turn to your heavenly Father in repentance and trust in Him once again. Because He's always available to you. Lastly, if you're feeling maybe especially wounded or hurt, because someone that should have been on your team has failed you, turned their heel against you, I want to remind you that David actually prophesied that exact scenario for Jesus, who then endured the very same thing when he went to that cross on your behalf. And when he rose up out of that grave in full victory over his enemies. And when he promised to return to set everything right once and for all. That is a promise I hang on to daily. There's a lot of things I want to set right by the sheer strength of my arm, which is getting stronger. But I can tell you the sheer strength of my arms would do more damage and destruction than is needed. I need to hang on to that truth that there will be a day Jesus will set everything right once and for all. And in the midst of that, His plan is to sweep every one of us off our feet and into His loving presence for all of eternity. Like That's, a, that's an action movie and a love story all put together. And I just think our hearts don't get captured by that enough. In the face of all the evils in this world, they would attempt to shut the church down, attempt to shut the church up. We need to remember. We need to remember. We need to be refreshed. We need to be strengthened by the message of the bloody cross, the message of the empty tomb, and the hope of eternity. Amen? Now, would you stand with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Lord God, that you would be with us as we close our time. Help us to worship you, to bring our failures and our weaknesses, our fears, our entire lives to you. Help us to lay ourselves at the foot of that bloody cross, remembering that empty tomb, holding on to the hope of 
eternity. Pray, Lord God, that you would do that and then some in our closing moments. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. God, we love you. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.